Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain the leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years' experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, welcome to this first session of Doing Church in a Post-Christian Era. We're going to discover some things that aren't so good, but we're going to discover some things that are very, very good. Today, we're going to talk about learning to thrive as strangers and aliens, because the Bible says that we're sojourners in other places. It calls us strangers and aliens, and we're going to learn from some strangers and aliens in the ancient past, and I think the lessons are going to hold us really well, but let's just take a really quick look at our culture. Culture has changed, but hope has not. The culture of the United States has changed drastically since I was a child and probably since you were a child. Actually, beginning around 150 years ago, postmodern thought began to kind of creep into the world. And, you know, this whole idea that tomorrow's a better day, science is going to make everything better, began to give way to a kind of a nihilism. It it started with a, a sense of, well, truth is perceived truth. It's not absolute truth. It's, you know, whatever you believe to be right is right, which then takes away the possibility of any kind of absolute truth or, of course, uh, truth from God. But postmodern thought made room for Christianity. In other words, if it works for you, it's cool. And we'll just kind of, you know, agree to disagree and we just go on from there. But post-Christian thought is a little different. Post-Christian thought is rooted in postmodern thought, but it's not only gone beyond Christianity, because there was this time where we thought that, you know, the culture thought that Christianity served its purpose, hospitals were built, colleges were built, cultures were built, but now we've moved beyond that. Now it's becoming post-Christian thought antagonistic toward Christianity, antagonistic toward religion of pretty much any kind, and we're going to get into that just a little bit and and try to understand it, but one of the things about this whole term post-Christian is that even in the postmodern era, we had Christian mores. In other words, a sense of respect for one another and, and appreciation for one another in spite of our differences. You know, postmodern thinkers didn't really believe in any kind of absolutes, but it's okay if you did. That has changed. And so here are seven characteristics of American culture today. One, we are more and more fascinated with the mystical, and we're interested in both the occult and darkness. This is why you see all the superhero movies. This is why oftentimes movies or online games uh, just kind of elevate violence and darkness to a, a level that would just be unanticipated 20, 30 years ago. I think the thought that there's an understanding and appreciation of the mystical is kind of a crack in the dike. It's a place for us to get in with our gospel if we'll take advantage of that. We'll get into this further as we go along, not today, but further. Uh, Our culture is infatuated with measurable performance in companies, in athletes, in celebrities. You know, you you could kind of uh, look at Steve Jobs as a kickoff for a lot of this, but certainly if anybody's a sports fan, we're, we're looking for things that we can hang our hat on. 
We're looking for things that we can be pretty sure of in a culture that's pretty unsure of anything else. And so this is why celebrityism is a big deal. This is why uh, the bigger the church, the better is kind of, you know, it's where this mentality of our culture has moved into the church and into our thinking. Uh, and, and sometimes we're just overlooking the gospel to engage all this kind of stuff and to be the way the people around us are. Our culture is no longer believing in absolute truth, choosing which truth to believe. This is the polarization of America. I read the news I want to read because it reinforces what I choose to believe. And we're just going to have to face this and overcome it with love because that's the only place that these polarizing arguments are going to um, be, be compromised to the point that we can really engage each other. This culture values credibility and it seeks to defame and deconstruct and destroy anything that it sees as lacking credibility or lacking authenticity. There's a strong antagonism that's just under the surface. And you know what? This is nihilism. When you take away uh, absolute truth, you take away absolute authority, you take away any hope for really a better tomorrow. And so we're just going to have to kind of make our own better tomorrow. And if we don't believe in what you're doing, then we're going to tear you apart. That's become a part of the fabric of our culture today. Uh, certainly was in the last presidential election. Uh, this culture is antagonistic to those who hold moral absolutes of any kind. It's, it's no longer, it's okay if you believe that, just don't step on my toes. Now it's, we're just coming after you. Uh, they're distrusting of all forms of authority and institutions, and especially the church. I mean, we hit the top of the list for the people who have antagonism as their way of life. And then the last thing about this culture, and again, here's a little crack. Here's a place where we can kind of get in. They're pursuing personal peace and contentment above societal needs. I mean, you know, it's, it's okay to want to cease global warming, but I'm going to still drive my big SUV. It's that kind of thinking that prevails in our culture. There's a sort of a, a, a built-in hypocrisy. In the back in the 1970s, Francis Schaeffer said, we'll come to a day where people accept authoritarian leadership, which seems to be ha happening in young people in the United States. They're, they're looking to the hard left to give them direction, and they're willing to sacrifice certain amount of personal freedom so that they can have personal peace. And this is a world that we have to contend with, but there, this whole need for contentment in a world that doesn't really offer it, again, is a place that we can reach in. Probably this is an open door for microchurch and the kind of things that we've been talking about. So here's some good news amid the bad. Church attendance is down both pre-COVID and post-COVID. In fact, Post-COVID, some people I heard the other day, I was in a conference I was teaching, and someone said only 60% of pre-COVID church attendance is occurring today. That's a kind of a scary thing. But on the other hand, maybe some good news is that the hardcore people are left behind and other people are floating around. And, and so, but here's another bit of good news. We know that church planting is up both pre and post-COVID. The exponential effect is that 11 years ago, only 4% of churches had ever multiplied or reproduced themselves, uh, mostly involved with church splits. Currently, the, the numbers are over 7%. Now, 7% is a long ways from 100. It's a long ways from 90. But they're telling us that 16% is a tipping point. If we could, we've almost doubled in 11 years. If we could double again in 11 years, we'd be at the point where church multiplication begins to be normative in our culture, and we're thinking so much about microchurch 
and freelance pastors and all these things, they open doors that we almost never knew existed before. And then here's another little bit of good news that I'm stumbling into almost everywhere I turn. I was recently in, in another city in California. I met with probably 1,500 people, uh, a lot of them face-to-face, and we're just talking to each other. And what, what I'm finding is that dropouts, you know, the, the, the religious duns, if you would, are self-assembling into micro-expressions of the church. Now, I did not say they're self-assembling into micro-churches. Even the way that we kind of simplify and, and begin to make it an, an easy thing to do, micro-church is an organized thing. As people are self-assembling, uh, it's, it's not really that put together, but it is positive. Believers are hanging out with believers, and they don't like to go to big church. I mean, it just comes down to that. The cool thing there is this opens a door for friendship evangelism, that I just hang out with these people. You want to come hang out with us? Uh, we're Christians, but we're not going to bother you with it. And you come along, and, and then you follow me as I follow Christ, and that's a really good thing. I want to go into the Old Testament and, and think about some scriptures that often we don't really understand because we don't understand them in context. And the first is an admonition to exiles. And I'm reading this here from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. It's in the English Standard Version, which I really love. And, it, and it's an admonition. A prophet is telling them, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is in the midst of a prophecy telling the people who have been forcibly removed from Judea to Babylon. And, you know, they're exiles in Babylon. Kind of where we're at is we're living in a Babylon of our own culture. And we're living as exiles. We're kind of shunted off to the side in the middle of all this. So what do we do in Babylon? Well, first, accept the fact that we're going to be here for a while, because that was part of Jeremiah's argument. You're going to be here for 70 years, get used to it. And basically, seek to bless the people around you, because as they're blessed, you'll be blessed. Seek the welfare of that city, because as the welfare of that city is advanced, well, then you're going to be better off. So we're talking about issues, I think, with social justice. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about racial reconciliation. We're talking about the environment. I can find all of those things in the Bible, but the evangelical church kind of turned its back on a lot of that stuff. See, I don't think you can really get to Matthew chapter 28 if you don't go through Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus comes and says, I came to do all these things to, to, to help the people that are hurting. The kingdom of God is at hand. We need to pursue the kingdom to the benefit of the people around us. And what I'm noticing is this, and I'm noticing it more in black churches than I am anywhere else, is, is people that are investing in the betterment of their communities are, are being more accepted and embraced and listened to than those people who are not. Seek the welfare of the place where you live because your welfare is wrapped up in that. And so I want us to look at scripture, one that we tend to quote out of context. I love this scripture, and I love to quote it out of context because it gives me the hope that it's, it's talking about. Jeremiah is talking again. It's the same passage of scripture. And he says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and keep my good promise to you, causing you 
to return to this place, back to Judea. But it's 70 years. It's going to take a while. We always forget to quote that part of this passage when we go on with verse 11. For I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts and plans for welfare and peace and not for evil, to give you hope in your final outcome. Then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me and I will hear you and I will heed you. So this incredible scripture, this promise that we all at different dark times in our lives have just clung to. God says, I'll give you a future and a hope. I don't mean evil for you. I only mean good. He's saying it to people who are living in exile. And I think then that that makes that promise of a future hope valid in our lives. But we've got to grapple with the fact that we are living as as exiles, as aliens, as people who don't quite belong in this world, as, as sojourners on our way to another world. But we've got a job to do in this one. Here's a, a, a scripture that we all quote and that we all love. And I think it's probably more appropriate in a way to our present hope. And it's this, Paul's writing, Philippians 4, verse 13. I'm reading it from the Amplified Bible because it goes a little further, a little fuller toward what we would find in the original text. It says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. And in parentheses, it says, I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. And I am self-sufficient. That's an interesting term to find in the Bible, self-sufficient. I am self-sufficient in Christ sufficiency. One translation of the Bible says, I can endure all things because of Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. Sounds so overcoming. I can endure all things. Sounds like, man, I'm grinding it out here, but that's kind of where we're at. We're grinding it out, and 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 but we're empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and if we're looking for the opportunity that's in the middle of the darkness, we're going to find it, and we're going to succeed. I picked out uh, six life lessons from Daniel in exile. He's, he's He's a prominent exile, but he's in exile. First is purpose, that we would purpose to maintain our standards while being reasonable. You know, we have high standards. We have high morals. We have high ethics. We believe in a moral absolute in the scripture. But there is a point to holler and make war and and get political about this, or, or there's a time for us to be loving and reasonable and gentle as we still hold to the high standards that God has given us. Gain and to use influence seasoned with humility. You know, as as Daniel held to his standards, I mean, the first thing was the thing that we see about the food. And uh, and yet he was reasonable. He was willing to, you know, kind of make some compromises along the way to protect the guy who was his jailkeeper, basically. And, and then as Daniel began to have influence, he interprets dreams, these kinds of things begin to happen. He stays humble. This isn't me. This is him. This is God. And then he adapts as the circumstances change. I mean, the whole thing of, of, of moving from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to, you know, the, the Persians as they come in there, you see that Daniel is adaptive and that we need to be thinking adaptively about everything in, in terms of the political landscape, in terms of the buildings that we use, um, you know, churches that are using coffee shops, uh, churches that are renting a bar on a Sunday night and, and using it as a talk time thing, uh, online stuff, 
we we know of one Facebook church that went from nothing to 408 months. We just kind of kind of be very, very flexible and very, very adaptable. One of the things that I have been impressed with recently is um, Alexander the Great and Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, there, there's a series on, I guess it's Amazon Prime, about great military commanders of the past. These two men both were able to look at any circumstance, any situation, and just turn on a dime. You know, uh, Grant is is probably the the greatest, they're saying, of the modern generals. Alexander was the greatest of the old-style generals. Alexander could could mobilize an army strategically, where before armies were just, you know, mass against mass. Uh, Alexander brought strategy into the thing. At one point when he's going up against the Persians, this is the battle that established Alexander. He finds that they're behind him, not in front of them. He, he thinks he's marching toward them to do battle, and he's got a plan. And then he discovers that he went past them, and now they're coming down on him from north to south. And in, and in a day, he turned it around, and in three days, he turned it into the most stunning military victory um, of the ancient world. Uh, Grant was able to uh, accept a, a, a loss in Virginia while he's got a victory going on in Georgia and strategically bring the South to its knees because he was able to look at the big picture and he could see the economy, he could see um, oppression, he could see the the hurts that people were going through. He saw how all of that came together in, in terms of war. It wasn't just soldier against soldier. And he was able to exploit the opportunities that were in front of him. We've got to be the kind of people who will adapt as our circumstances change and change they will. Nobody yet really even knows what's going to come as a result of the whole COVID thing. You know, I look back at the, the extreme blessing of the Pentecostal revivals in the 1920s, I mean, it's, they started in 1906 in Southern California, I think. And but, but by the 1920s, things were really rolling along. In between, there was a pandemic. And that pandemic changed the world as we know it, it changed church as we knew it, uh, it changed everything. You, you know, when great change comes, great opportunity comes with it. But you got to be adaptive. Keeping God at the center. Uh, this is not about the church. This is not really about the gospel. This is not about evangelism. This is about Jesus is the Lord. This is about keeping him the center of everything that we're doing. It's so easy for me to keep the ministries that I'm doing at the center of my life and forget that Jesus needs to be the center of my life. And Daniel did that to, to his detriment. That's how he ended up in the lion's den. Determined to stand firm during the hard times. Daniel toughed it out. And the Lord blessed him, and he survived the lions. And then the last part, live well and prosper. It says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, that Daniel prospered. And this brings me back to the prophecies earlier of Jeremiah. Seek the welfare of the people where you live in the midst of your exile, and it will their welfare will be your welfare. Well, Daniel prospered, and we can prosper too. We should expect to prosper in, in materially, uh, socially, every other way. Uh, in these times. I want to talk about living in Christ's strength, in the strength of Jesus in, in the midst of the challenge that we face. So here, here's the thing to realize is we're not alone in this. Post-Christian thought is permeated every, uh, every part of our society and our culture. Post-Christian thought is disrupting everything from the anti-police movement to the presence of Antifa uh, to the um, that now the, the, the kind of onslaught against freedom of speech, 
uh, this whole woke movement is considering freedom of speech to be something that's repressive toward minority peoples. Uh, we're living in a world where everybody is having to figure out how do we communicate our message? How do we govern? How do we do what we have to do? So the challenge that the church faces, we're not alone in this. Every social institution that there is, is grappling with this whole thing. We need to recognize post-Christian thinking and determine the best way to connect with and influence both individuals and the culture. You know, again, adaptivity, what, what works best? How will it work best? How can we craft something that is going to engage individuals? And ultimately, we're going to change the culture only by changing people one heart at a time as they come to know Jesus as their Savior. Impact awaits those who deliberately embrace and offer betterment to those living in a culture that is nihilistic, is results ultimately in hopelessness. If there is no God, if, if, if there's nothing that is true that we can depend upon, then my life has no meaning. If we can come into people's lives, into their brokenness, I mean, immigrant cultures, poor cultures, people who are sick that need healing, uh, marriages that are broken, you know, family is the number one thing that Americans say that they value. We'll talk about that in the next session. What can we bring to the table to bring the betterment of these people? Again, the welfare of these people becomes our welfare. And then we need to realize that the gospel in its pure form, not in its churchy forms, and not in its religious forms, but the gospel in its pure form is as relevant now as it ever, ever has been. When what we're seeing happen is as individuals who are kind of floating around our loss are introduced to little circles of believers who are loving and friendly and they're trying to figure out why something happens and lives are changed and uh, the gospel transforms people like it always has. One of the reasons that I'm a Christian is that I see radical change in the lives of people. One day you're doing drugs, the next day you're not. A couple of times in my life, twice only, uh, early days, I saw someone delivered from heroin. I mean, like in an instant. One guy is is snoring through the back of a church service on a Sunday night, and I'm up there trying to preach, and he's snoring really loud. Afterwards, we found out he was all doped up on, on horse, on heroin. And we prayed for him, and it's like, whoop, it's over. And uh, I mean, just in his right mind, I saw another guy that was just splattered on whatever it was he had taken. And, and we would try to, you know, coach him to the gospel and take him to the four spiritual laws, actually. And we get him right up to the end. Do you want to pray? And he'd just go nuts on us and start doing these kind of weird things and saying strange stuff. Finally, we just kind of figured out this is demonic. And we ask him, can we have permission to tell, uh, we think there's an evil spirit kind of bothering you. Could we have your permission to tell that thing to leave you alone? And he goes, yeah, man. And so we did. And then we brought him through the four spiritual eyes and we prayed with him and a guy accepted Jesus. Amazing story. We had prayed the day after Halloween, um, a couple months before, like six, seven months before. I don't remember what it was. I guess Halloween's in October and this is in June. And, and, and somebody had burglarized our church, and we had an offering box on the wall. They ripped the box off the wall, uh, broke it all up, uh, took the money, and we were just devastated. But we prayed, God, we pray that that person, whoever did this, will find the Lord in this building, in the church building. Now, you know, I'm not trying to center my whole life on church buildings, but we're in the church building. We're praying, let that man, whoever it was, find Jesus in this building and let him confess to us what he did. Well, this guy, Chris, 
except to the Lord in the building. He came to a stoned out of his mind, uh, having thrown up all over some lady's rug. He was supposed to paint her house and he bought drugs and beer with it, uh, the money she gave him. And so now he, he's accepted Jesus. He's turned on. We see him just radically transformed. A couple of months later, I'm giving him a ride home from a youth camp in the mountains. And he confesses to me that he's the guy that stole the church offering all those months ago. And it's like, man, I see God do these incredible things. There is power in the gospel. And sometimes we've made it power in our programs. And if we get back to the gospel, we're looking good. And so I want to just leave you with this what I'm calling fresh ideas from the ancient past. It's just the scripture in James chapter one. Consider pure joy. Ooh, pure joy. I don't like what's going on around me. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. See, this all starts with me admitting there's a certain amount of immaturity in Ralph Moore. I'm incomplete. There's stuff I need to know. The world coming down on me the way that it's come down on me. And certainly as a pastor, over and over and over again, I was forced to grow when we would tangle with the government or, you know, trying to build a building or tangle with the Department of Education, the things that we were doing in public schools. And, and then we would see our, the Lord move us through this thing. And, and, and there was a maturity and a strength that grew in us as, as we did this. And then it says this, and this is kind of where I'm trying to go for. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God. You know, one of the frustrations that I have is how many young pastors that I meet that are, are listening to seven, eight, nine podcasts a week. You know, I almost want to tell these guys, hey, don't listen to mine anymore because you're, you're getting confused. There's too many voices out there. There's just there's just so much stuff. When I'm trying to do research on what's going on in our culture and stuff, my gosh, I can go in so many different directions. What needs to happen is that we need to go to the Lord. When, when we're talking about flexibility, adaptability, and betterment of the people around us, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Well, you know, this guy wrote a book on this, and there's a, there's a seminar on this, and there's a podcast, and there's this blog, and all those are good things. I mean, I'm doing them, so it must be good. But it says here, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And I found that the greatest things that have happened in my life have been when my back has been against the wall and have been on my face and some little bit of revelation comes through. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Hey, God's not going to get mad at you for saying, I don't know what the heck to do. But when he asks, you must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And you know what? I want you to know I've been double-minded for much of my life and just kind of settling down, hunkering down and getting it right with Jesus has been a really, really powerful thing. And then here's another, it, it ends with this. And, and, and I don't, we don't usually quote this, you know, we get the wisdom part, we get the asking God, we get to not being double-minded, but then it says this, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Wow. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. We're in humble circumstances. We're sort of the outcasts of much of our society. Uh, we're the enemy to many people who are teaching in universities. We're in a humble position, and we ought to take pride in our high position. 
because it's when God humbles us that he can lift us up. It's pretty powerful stuff. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may lift you up. You know, he's going to do it in ways that we wouldn't plan. He's going to do it in ways that uh, don't get written about in magazines, but he's going to do it. That if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift us up. We are exiles. We are strangers. Let's admit it. Let's seek the Lord in it. Let's seek the betterment of these people around us and not be fighting with them. And let's not just seek pure evangelism. Let's seek to engage people the way Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 4. And as we do, evangelism is going to happen. And, And the church, the kingdom, the big C church is going to grow. You and I get to be a part of that. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.